0: morning church family. Wow. This is is a little bit different, isn't it? This kind of reminds me of church back in the islands, so I thought I would dress the part. So I even got my slippers. These are called slippers. They're not flip-flops. Okay, these are my slippers. And just just to feel the mood, this is really good. Just don't get too comfortable meeting outdoors like this, man, that this is really nice. Hey, listen, so, um, you, you know, just there's this urban myth I'm an urban myth, but there's this idea during quarantine that there's a lot of people just sitting around binge-watching Netflix and just just a lot more time on their hands. And let me just tell you, probably for a lot of you, that is not true of the staff here at Christ Community Church. Uh, uh, everything from, we just did our first, hopefully last, digital Adventure Week. Come on, I, how did, Kids, how did you enjoy Adventure Week this year? <laughs> okay parents, how did you enjoy Adventure Week? Yeah, that's right. So, so that was a huge thing to to kind of pivot to do that, to having youth group hosted online on Zoom and then for a couple weeks we got to be on campus and then having to pivot to hosting youth group back in the park to the administrative staff. If not weekly, daily, listening to the government as they give us the kind of ever-changing protocols and policies to pivoting, realizing we can no longer now meet indoors like we were able to for about a month and to have to pivot and meet outdoors. And so they have been on top of it. So if you know anybody who works at our church, just like a lot of you at your workplaces, give them, just give them an attaboy or you girl girl because you go girl because they have been working really hard to make our outdoor service actually work like this. So thank you guys, the staff. And for, and for, you know, thank you all too for being so flexible, and I get it. It's like service, no service, sanctuary, FLC, indoor, outdoor, singing, no singing, mask, no mask, a handshake, full embrace, high five, fist bump, I don't know, now i got to bring a chair. It's a bit much, and none of you have complained None of you have, have, I think of Numbers 11 through 14, where the children of Israel just constantly grumbled and murmured. We heard none of that. So thank you guys all so much for doing that. Before I jump into our, our series, One Act of Righteousness, um, and this is going to be really hard. It was easy to preach sitting at a chair at a camera when there's nobody here, like we did for so long. Now that you're here, I want to jump out, but I will knock something over or fall off of this thing. So I'm going to try really hard to stay here. Before we jump into our series on Jesus's session today, I, I do want to say something. Um, on the one hand, I think it's been really good. I've heard this from people. Coming on Sunday mornings has been really nice because... Man, it, it's kind of a break from the maelstrom of conversation and news feed about what's going on in our culture, from everything from, from the George Floyd situation to, to COVID-19, and it's been nice to come here and just for a few moments fellowship and forget about all that stuff. You know, I think only, only once did we pivot, as that was in March when we had to shut things down. We, we, we broke from our, service ser- our sermon series and talked about um, certain truths for uncertain times, Uh, rarely do I ever do that, but we recognize as elders, we've been talking for hours how so much Iran is going in our culture that on the one hand, while I know it's been nice to come here and get a break from the 24-7 news feed, we also don't want to think about that the gospel's tone deaf to the issues of our society. So when we're done with this series, we're actually going to be wrapping this series up really quick. We just have a couple more weeks. We're going to give two weeks to... um, Basically, we want to talk about gospel and race, and then fear and faith, because those are things that are just always on our minds, and we're thinking about it, and so when we're done with this series, we'll give a couple Sundays to gospel and race and fear and faith, um, and, and the reason being, though, those are pretty obvious, right? I don't have to explain why we're going to talk about those, but so in our counseling class that we teach here, we always make it a case that we say, functionally speaking, you want to know where worship happens, right? Because when we think of worship... If you're in the know, you know what worship is, but a lot of people still think of worship as these formal gatherings and formal things. But that's not what really wor- what worship is. Worship happens at the intersection of our faith, the, the things we believe, and our desire, the things we want. So our faith and our desires, where they intersect, where that overlaps there, that's where worship takes place. And, 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 and in this time period, being given this, this is an election year, a lot of times for people, faith and desire is manifested in, in politics, what, what, what they hope's going to happen, what they believe is going to happen. It gets manifested in our politics. And, and, and generally, as Americans, we are really concerned. Sorry, i got water up here. Now there's water all over the platform. We're concerned about whoever sits in power. But I don't know if it's just me, but it, it seems like for the last 20 years, ever since those darn hanging chads in Florida, right, back in 2000 with President Bush and Al Gore, it seems like every election cycle gets more intense, it gets more disputed, and it seems to get more consequential. I have literally seen people wailing in the streets about when they found out who became president. On the other hand, I've seen people dancing for joy in the street when they found out who became presidents. And, and the reaction seems to get more extreme from, from the extremes to mildly entertaining. And I think the reality is, in our culture we know, whoever sits in power, it's a big deal in our country, right? Obviously, policies get decided, national safety could be at stake. Our, our values either get promoted or they get reversed, and obviously as an american i'm concerned who sits in power in the white house just like all of you but but it does not obsess or consume me at all and as a christian really the reality is neither your mood nor your joy nor your hopes nor your fears should be tied to the political ebbs and flows of our culture because the bible clearly teaches us that there is someone of far greater consequence who sits in power, and his office is not open to re-election every four years. And so that's why this morning, Jesus' session is really important for us to think about. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do, turn open to the book of Hebrews. We're going we're to spend a lot of time in the Hebrews this morning. So go to Hebrews, it's right after Philemon, right before the book of James. I'm going to flip open there as well. And as if, friends, uh, 2020 could not get more uh, crazy, more stressful, or more, more culturally chaotic. This is an election year, so, you know, strap in. That's all I can say, right? Whether it'll be Joe Biden, uh, Donald Trump, or, or Kanye West. I mean, uh, is, there, is, is there anyone else in the race at this point? So whoever gets to be in the White House, it doesn't really ultimately matter for the Christian who's a citizen of another kingdom, right? So because we know the one who sits in power is Jesus Christ, and it's from his throne that true power comes from. The Bible calls this Jesus's session. And and to make this easy, we're going to follow the same format this week that we did last week by asking and answering three questions. Number one, um, what is Jesus's session? Number two, why is Jesus' session important? And then number three, uh, how does Jesus' session uh, matter to us? Okay, So what is Jesus' session, why is it important, and how does it matter to us? So for my kids here that we got out in the congregation, uh, this is a good time. By the way, we don't know how long we'll be meeting outdoors, but parents, if you haven't gotten one of those children notebooks from Hannah, Hannah, raise your hand up there. She can get you one, so you can bring those with your kids every Sunday. So for this morning, kids, I'm going to be talking about, your parents are going to help you out with this, I'm going to be talking about one of three roles that Jesus occupies and I want you to draw a picture that best captures that in your mind, okay? So you're going to have to pay attention because I'm not going to tell you where it's going to come in the sermon. It's going to be obvious when I get there, and your parents can help you out, but I want you to draw one of those three pictures or rolls and then email that to Hannah, and she'll put you into a drawing to win a great prize. Okay, so with that, let's, let's jump into it. Let's ask the first question, what is Jesus' session? So first of all, let me acknowledge something. Unless you're a Presbyterian, you're not used to hearing this word session in a church context. Now, it's a word you are familiar with, and we'll explain it in a little bit. It it comes from the Latin, uh, to be seated. Okay, so session means to be seated. And we hear this word all the time, just not in a church context. So, for example, court is now in... Session, right? Oh man, we just had a a grueling cardio session at the gym. right? So we use this term, it's just not in the context we're used to. The word session just means a meeting to conduct business, a period of time focused on a certain activity. And so when the court's in session or you had a cardio session, it's some time you're dedicating to get something done. When, the, when we talk about Jesus' session, we're talking about this period of time, a focused activity of what Jesus is doing. And the Bible talks about his session as reigning and ruling in power. So let me explain this to you briefly. Um, you got your Bibles open. Let, let's look at some passages of Scripture. So go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We're going to read three verses from Hebrews to kind of set this up. Okay, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, we talked about this last week, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the la- that last phrase I want to draw your attention to. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Flip open to uh, Hebrews chapter 10, just a few pages to the left or to the right. Hebrews chapter 10 and s- verse 12. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12, it says this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, again, this hints back to last week. This was his ascension. He goes up into the heavenly realms and presents his work. Then it says, he sat down at the right hand of God. Again, so we see both the ascension and the session here. After he offered a sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. Last verse, Hebrews 12. So one page over to the right. Verse 2. A verse many of you might be familiar with. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So so there we have those three times Jesus' ascension. In some some of them, they talk about his resurrection, his ascension, and now his session, right? Sometimes they just one or the other, but each thing is uh, common is he sits down at the right hand of power, the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me put this in the context for you for the last couple of weeks. In in Jesus' resurrection, Jesus has conquered our foes. The greatest of our foe is death itself. In the resurrection, Jesus conquers death, and he inaugurates the new creation. Friends, by the way, that's part of what the church is. We are the glimpse, we're the trailer, so to speak, of of the show to come. What are we the trailer of? This new creation where everything's remade. People ought to see it in the church community. They're seeing the new life of Christ invade this old life. They're seeing us broken free of our of our of our sins, of our addictions, of our lusts, the things that dominated our lives before. And now we're different. So when people see the church, what they should be seeing is a sneak preview of this resurrection life. This is what it can look like. It's not there yet. But this is what it begins to look like in this community, right? This is why Paul talks about Ephesians 2. The two men have become one in Christ. There's this radical recreation taking place, and that's the church, right? So the resurrection is a a reminder. Death's been defeated, and there's a new creation coming, and you guys are the, the trailer for the coming attraction. In Jesus' ascension... He, he finishes his limited uh, er, work on this earthly plane and now ascends to an unlimited plane in heaven to continue that redemptive work. And now in his session, he's carrying out that rule and reign in power. Now, here's something that that, 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 that word is a very loaded word, power, especially when we talk about in the context of our culture and politics. And, and we get nervous when any individual has too much power, don't we? As a matter of fact, what they say that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is how the saying goes, right? Do you realize our entire political system, our entire political system is based on the principle to the the division of powers. No one person, no one entity should have that, that much power, so we split it up. So I know this might be like total heresy for us as Americans, but can we be honest and say that democracy is not the best form of government. I mean, it's certainly not the most efficient, right? Can we at least agree there, right? What is the best and most efficient form of government? Monarchy. When you have a king or a queen and that one individual calls the shots and bam, things get done. In fact, friends, democracy is a tip of the hat to the truth that People are crooks at the end of the day. People are wicked, and they will do all kinds of things, and we need to divide that power to prevent anyone from abusing the power that they get. Democracy isn't here because we think, oh, this is the best form of government because of us enlightened, informed, cultured people will lead society to a golden age. No! Democracy exists because we realize, man, people are crooked. And people look out for themselves and not for others. So we need to divide the powers so that no one person, no one group has enough say-so to take over. I know that's shocking to hear. Here's something even more shocking. That means, friends, when nothing seems like it's getting done democracy is working, right? That, that's exactly how it was set up, that we would always be arguing and counter-arguing and putting up ideas and taking those ideas down, and really nothing seems to get ahead because we don't want any one person or any one power to get ahead. Here's the dilemma, though. we And, and by the way, our founding fathers understood this very well. Here we are 250 years into it, we kind of wonder. We, we, we feel the dilemma that we still yearn For someone to have the power to make the differences that we see that this world needs. But at the same time, we recognize nobody can have that kind of power who doesn't eventually abuse the power or use it for their own purposes. And that's kind of the dilemma we feel as a culture. Which is why I love John chapter 13. John chapter 13 and verse 3, particularly in the NIV translation, where it says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, and that He had come from God, and He was returning to God. If you're familiar with John 13, so when Jesus knew that God had put all things under His power, what does He do? He puts on a towel and bends down and starts washing feet. How mind-blowing that John would juxtapose the two most radical differences. The one that has all power takes the role of a slave and gets down and, and wipes the like the manure and the grime off between the, toe, the toes of Peter and, and scrubs John's filthy callus, got some, you know, the corn bunions or whatever, or the callus or whatever, and he washes their feet. What a juxtaposition of how he uses power. When you look in the Gospels, how does Jesus use power? John 13 tells us he uses his power to serve. Matthew 9 tells us he uses his power to heal. Mark chapter 1 tells us Jesus used his power to bring purity to the leper. Do you remember that? John chapter 2, I love that one. Jesus uses his power to bring joy, right? You guys know John chapter 2. What's happening in John chapter 2? The wedding at Cana, right? Jesus is the one that uses his power to keep the party going. Jesus uses his power never for himself but for others. This is the rule that we want This is the rule that we desire because he alone used his power, not for himself, but for the benefit of others. In fact, if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 27, this is exactly what the the Pharisees and the religious leaders taunted Jesus with while he hung on the cross. Do you remember what they said to him? He saved others, he cannot save himself. Well, they were right in a certain sense, weren't they? And, and they were wrong in another sense, right? Yes and no. And Laurie always tells me, I never give a straight answer. Everything is yes and no, right? They, they, were, they were wrong and they were right. They were wrong because he could have saved himself, right? Didn't Jesus say earlier, if, it were, if I would want to, I could bring down legions of angels right now. Jesus could have saved himself, but if he did, he couldn't save us. If Jesus is going to save us, he cannot save himself. So when they taunted him, he had all that power. He could save others. He cannot save himself. They were both wrong and right. He could have. He could have saved himself, but then he wouldn't be able to save us. If he's going to save us, he cannot save himself. Jesus uses his power always for the benefit of others. In Jesus' session, when He reigns and rules in power, it's an amazing juxtaposition because He's the only one that has the power and authority to use that power for Himself, and He never does. That's His session, using His power, reigning supreme, to bless, to heal, to purify, to bring joy. Now, why is Jesus' session important? The reason Jesus' session is important, this is our second question, and if you want to get a broad understanding of, of just understanding Israel as a nation, which is all of the Old Testament, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that, Jesus fulfills the three most important offices in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the three important roles that governed all of Israel. And if you haven't picked it up by now, I'm introducing you the three one of the three roles you kids can draw, right? What are those three roles? Prophet, priest, and king you want to understand how Israel functioned as a society in the Old Testament, you just have to understand those three roles, prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, Jesus, he speaks the word of God. In fact, the Bible says Jesus is the very word of God. As priest, Jesus beautifully reconciles us to God. He represents God to man and man to God. In fact, Jesus' very personhood, the God-man, speaks to his role as priest. As king, Jesus rules over all things and all things are subject to him. Now, did you notice when we read in Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 10.12, Hebrews 12.2, 12, each time it refers to Jesus, he sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. Let's talk about that for a second because it's really important. When you and I come home from a long day at work, we sit down, right? But why do we sit down? because I'm exhausted and I need to take a break and I'm about to relax. That is not the image here. When Jesus sits down, kind of like when the judge enters the courtroom and the judge sits down, then everyone else can sit down. That's when the work is about to begin. So in Hebrews 1, 10, and 12, when it says he sat down, it's talking about Jesus is sitting down to to initiate and to exercise his session as the supreme prophet, priest, and king. In other words, he sits down to work. So let's look at him sitting down, so to speak, as prophet. Keep your finger in Hebrews. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 for the most part. So here's Jesus as prophet. Long ago, the writer says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, if you haven't noticed in this series, One Act of Righteousness, we have spent a lot of time in the book of Hebrews, haven't we? Almost every week we're dipping into the book of Hebrews. The reason is the book of Hebrews, the the kind of the goal of Hebrews is to show the superiority of the Son over all of the Old Testament systems and ritual and sacrifice and priesthood and all that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And here is the first statement about that, that Jesus is the final and full revelation of God himself. That all those things that came back for in the past, the sacrificial systems, the law, all that was a foreshadowing to Jesus Himself. And Hebrews says he's the final and full revelation. So the takeaway is look, do you want to know God? You want to understand God? Know the Son. Right? This idea that there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God completely falls apart. Because if you want to know God, you know the Son. Because he's the final and full revelation of who God himself is in his character. He is the prophetic revelation, unveiling of who God is. Secondly, as priest, let's take a look there. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14 in Hebrews chapter 10. So Hebrews 1 establishes him as the final uh, prophet, kind of the final prophecy, revelation of God. And in Hebrews 10, we see him as the final priest. Hebrews 10 verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, now, let me just pause there. And, and I, I love the language of the Bible. Did you notice how the writer is is showing you the contrast? The priests daily, offering repeatedly, but Jesus for all time, a single sacrifice, right? So notice that contrast. Then what does he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, why do the priests stand daily, right? The answer is here in the text because the job is never done why do they have to offer sacrifices all the time because the job is never done and so what the writer of hebrews is doing he's drawing two ideas jesus sitting down speaks to two different things on the one hand as priest he doesn't have to stand at the altar his job's done so he he's done right but at the same time the fact that now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high in one sense his job is completely done but it now just begins. Because notice what verse 14 says. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. I want you to notice this. Perfected, past tense, the job is done. He perfected for all time, past, present, and future, those who are being sanctified, present tense, So you notice what he's saying by Jesus' one act that he did, your your past tense perfected for all time. Those being sanctified, that means you and I right now, are perfected past tense for all time. Past, present, and future for the work of what this priest has done. So friends, it's not like when you or I fall short or we fail God's standards, Jesus has to hop off his throne and run over to the altar. Okay, I'm not gonna do that. Run over to the altar and present again his work. He doesn't have to do that. And it's not as if God the Father needs it, like somehow he forgot. They they sit together and when when you or I fail, when we we, we fail to live up to his commandments, when we fail to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, when we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, The atonement doesn't have to happen again. They just kind of look, hey, the job's done. It's good. It's all good because the priest did the job. It's a done deal. So that's him as prophet. That's him as priest. Now let's look at him as king. And and imagine it this way, friends, to keep with the political metaphor. The ascension that we studied last week, imagine that's kind of like the inauguration of a president big fanfare, and he kind of walks up those steps in front of, I guess it's the Supreme Court or wherever he walks up. There's this big celebration, and okay, there's the new installed leader. That's the ascension. And as king, he sits down to rule. So for that, keep your finger in Hebrews, but I want you to go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. We looked a little bit at this uh, in the last couple of weeks, but I want to draw your attention to it again. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 32, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 32, and we're going to read to verse 36, Acts 2, 32. This Jesus God raised up, right, we talked about that, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, and we're going to talk about that next week at Pentecost, verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what... what um, Luke is recording Peter's talking about he's when especially when he says the Lord said to my Lord sit at your right hand he's quoting from Psalm 10 the most quoted psalm in the New Testament and the entire psalm is what's called messianic it's talking about Jesus ascending to the throne of heaven and ruling in his session And he says, this is happening right now. Jesus is installed, and he's ruling from heaven. And here's something you guys got to hear. You don't have to go there, but I'm going to read to you Revelation 3.21. So here is Jesus ascended into heaven. He is ruling supreme as king. And listen what he says in Revelation 3.21, because it's what king ever does this. He says this, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sit down with my father on his throne. Now, don't get caught up like, wow, there's three of us sitting on that throne. It's a little bit crowded. And If that applies to all of us, how are we fitting on the throne? You're missing the point, right? Jesus is saying to the one who conquers, to the one who's faithful, I will give to them that glory, that throne that I have been given myself. I'm giving it to you. Friends, what king does that? Well, this king does. His session shows us that he is the prophet that all the prophets pointed to. He is the priest that every priest, that every serve pointed to. He is the king that every king pointed to. He's the prophet, praise King Supreme, and he reigns right now. Friends, he reveals who God is. He reconciles us to God, and he shares his glory with us. Let's, let's try and get this a little bit practical. I mean, As a prophet, why wouldn't you want to listen to that voice? Are you listening to that voice? Or as opposed to all the other voices that are yelling for your attention in this world. Friends, think about what are the voices that you're constantly looking to? How many of you, first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is you open a news app. Guess whose voice you're listening to? How many of you open up a social media? Guess whose voice you're listening to? Why do we want to listen to Fox News' voice or MSNBC's voice or CNN's voice or, or, or Facebook's voice or Instagram's voice when we have one voice that will always speak truth and clarity to us, right? Friends, as a priest, why would you, wouldn't you want to rely on his priestly mediation instead of our own priestly mediation, our own works and our own deeds to be acceptable to God? Right? Oh man, I didn't do my quiet time today, and I better, I better get to doing that. Or I, I didn't go to church this week, so now I'm condemned. Or I didn't do this. You're relying on your own works and deeds. Rely on the priest who has already reconciled us to God, right? As King, why would you? Why wouldn't you want to trust His plan and His strength rather than our, trusting to our own strength, our own plans? And friends, we are, aren't we? We are listening to other voices. We are relying on other mediations. We are looking to other, uh, other kings to give us strength. Well, what's the strength you're relying on? Is it the, the strength that there will be political change, that the strength of this social movement will make a difference, the strength of science that's going to one day find us secure and we'll be all okay, the strength of herd immunity, all those things? Now, again, I'm not discounting those, but is that the king you're trusting in? You would never profess betraying Jesus through your lips. None of us would do that. But are we betraying him through the way we functionally live our lives, by listening to other voices, by relying on other priests, by trusting in other strength, not from him? See, this is why Jesus' session is so important. Whose voice do I listen to? Who am I relying to to make me okay with God? Who am I trusting will make things work out? And guys, I'm with you there. I'm tempted too. I'm in the same cultural milieu we're all in. But I'm reminded that there is a one who sits on a throne that's far above this world. We've already kind of answered question three, but let me just kind of wrap this up to button this up. So we talked about what is Jesus' session? Why is it important? Now finally, how does Jesus' session matter to to us? And, And basically, it's this. Nature hates a vacuum, and so do we. So does our society. We, we long for a person to sit in power to make the changes that we know need to be made, but we, long, we realize that that can be none of us. And so culturally, we have one of three options before us. Number one, and I'll get this through real quick. Number one, here's option one. Keep chasing the ever-receding horizon of, of a man-made utopia, whether that comes through politics or technology or, or humanism, Right? If we just get the right man or woman in the White House, we'll be good. If we just tip the scales and get enough seats in the Senate or the House, we'll be fine, right? Um, If we just create the right technologies that we can live longer, live healthier, and overcome disease and all those things, right? Guys, if anything, if you're a student of history... It's like after the Enlightenment, when we told God you can take a, a long walk off a short cliff, right, which is what we did as a society. We, we moved from pre-modern to modernism to post-modernism. We said, we can do this, right, the death of God, Nietzsche, and all them. It's like God said in the 20th century, ah, oh, is that you don't need me anymore. Uh, okay, all right, you, you can have this whole century and see what, how that works out for you. Man, the 20th century had, has shown... All of these things are politics, our technologies, our humanisms. They're abject failures. So we can keep chasing that ever-receding horizon. A lot of people do. The second option is this. You just give in to despair. And, and that shows itself in many different ways. Despair can be shown in, in man, just give. who doesn't matter. I'm just going to just drink and just forget my problems, and I'm going to just it's what's called nihilism. Why does it matter? It's depressing. Who cares? But despair can also show itself in, dude, I'm just going to drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? So you can have the exact opposite surface response, the same root, despair. So you can become depressed about it, or you can be kind of like what I call David Lee Roth Van Halen about it, like just party and don't think about it. Both of those are giving into to despair, So we either keep trying harder, or we give up, or there's a third option. Recognize we are in too deep, and we cannot save ourselves, and there's got to be help that comes from the outside. That's the only other option. Either we keep trying, we give up, or option three, we look to someone else to help us out. The reality is, friends, look, not not a president can fix our nation's problems or your own personal problems. But the Bible says maybe a king can. Not a king of this world, a king like John 18, 36, a king who has a kingdom from, that is not of this world. And imagine this, if our hearts and lives were so gripped that we were a citizen of that kingdom, we wouldn't obsess or get consumed or, or take uh, inordinate joy or despair from the, the, the ebbs and flows of these many kingdoms we live in. Friends, what that means is what that, that mean, it has a lot of application. So let me just tell you what that means. That what that means is I'm so consumed with that kingdom, that actually means that I can love being an American, or if I'm from Japan, I can love being a Japanese or from Kenya, I can love being Kenyan, I can love being an American, but I can also be critical of America because at the end of the day, I'm a citizen of another kingdom, and I don't have to get defensive about it, right? I can love my ethnicity because it's who I am, it's part of my who I am, but I can also critique my own culture because my identity is not wrapped into any of the things of this world. What that means, friends, is I can walk into, and some of you who are on my Facebook friends and stuff, you've seen the kind of firestorm I walked into last week, right? And, 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 and I can walk into these conversations and have good conversations about hard things and I don't get upset, I don't get defensive, and I can actually persuade, I can love people well because I don't get caught up into all the kind of peripheral things that so often distract us because I'm a citizen of another kingdom. I love my country, I love my ethnicity, but that's not my identity, because my identity is I'm a citizen of another kingdom, I'm a son of another king. And friends, what this means is that doesn't mean we check out of the world, actually this gives us the resources and the reason we can actually engage this world because God created it and God loves it, but we can also critique this world because it has fallen and it needs to be remade and renewed the way God intended So we can actively engage whatever opportunities or obligations God has put before you. You can actively engage those, but with this perspective, that the perspective that really matters, that comes from Jesus' sitting on the throne, that's the thing that matters most, and how can we bring that into all the areas of our life? So in conclusion, friends... Whether we continue as a church, because that is what God is doing. we know this. God is building His people to be a people, ambassadors of another kingdom to this world, whether we meet indoors, outdoors, bigger groups, smaller groups, legally, illegally. Right? that would have been sounded weird to say a year ago. But man, that can happen. It happens in many countries all the time, right? So regardless of the circumstance, we can continue to proclaim a risen, ascended. Root, savior who sits ruling on the right hand of the majesty on high that's our confidence that's what all that, that when we talk about race and and the gospel and fear and faith that's what that's going to be stemming from so i just want to give you a preview of that but that's be coming up in a couple of weeks let's close in prayer father we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people to sing your praise. We thank you for the, uh, the, just the, the fact that we have a building where we can meet indoors or outdoors, and it's great. Thank you for the fellowship that we so long for. Thank you that we as a church worship better together. Father, whether we're physically together or people with our live streams or, or watching this through Facebook, we thank you for the fact that you are building your church. Help our eyes, as Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, not to be on the things of this earth, but to be, think, have our minds put on the things above where you are seated at God's right hand. And so we thank you for these things in your name. Amen. <laughs>